Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Typically, the holidays are a season of lasts. The last days of the year, the closing weeks of the football season, if your team was even lucky enough to make the playoffs, the last chances for year-end giving. If you've ever worked for a nonprofit, I know you know. Here at Crime Capsule, however, they're a season of firsts. Not only are we celebrating our first official book giveaway, but today is, believe it or not, the first crime-free episode in our entire show. That's right. We can hardly believe it either, but there are, in fact, no crimes committed today. Zero. Zilch. Nada. But wait, don't turn off your device. What we have for you instead is something slightly different. With Christmas just behind us in the rear view, we are delighted to welcome author and historian Robin Smith Johnson into the studio for a special Christmas-themed episode of Holiday Horror, featuring another historian who had a most unusual but delightful holiday habit, spreading not horror, but goodness and joy to everyone he met. A Massachusetts-based historian, Robin is the author of Cape Cod Curiosities, Jeremiah's Gutter, The Historian Who Flew His Santa, Puckwudgies, and more, published by the History Press. Before we get to it, however, we have one small update on that first Crime Capsule giveaway. Originally, we said that entries needed to be in by the 24th on Christmas Eve, but we know you were all busy getting ready for the big day. So we're extending the window until the last day of the year. Now you have until this Saturday at midnight on New Year's Eve to send in your entries. Again, it could not be easier to enter. Just write us a short email at crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com and tell us your name, the city or state you're writing from, and which was your favorite episode from our paranormal series, and just a sentence or two why. We will send the winner a free copy of that author's book straight from the History Press. Maybe this is a season of lasts, after all. Your last chance to enter this giveaway is the last minute of the last day of the year. So drop us a line. Now... Let's sit down with Robin Smith-Johnson, author of Cape Cod Curiosities, and indulge ourselves in some historical Christmas cheer. Robin, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you join us. Oh, thank you so much, Benjamin. It's nice to be here. So you are a native of Massachusetts, and you are a longtime resident of Cape Cod, uh, based on your previous books, I'm not sure anyone knows more about the area than, than you do. Uh, would you uh, tell us a little bit about some of your previous work? Yes. Well, I'm actually a poet, and I've published two books of poetry, but I worked as the newsroom librarian at the Cape Cod Times for almost 20 years. And in 2009, I started a blog called Cape Rewind meaning going back into the Cape Cod history. And where I worked had 
um, a wonderful array of old clip files and books and manuscripts. And so I was happy when I started my blog that I was able to collect these stories. And in 2015, a history press rep contacted me about doing a book. So that really is where it all started. Were you publishing these stories in the Times as sort of an occasional column or a piece or sort of retrospective from time to time? That's interesting. A few of them did make the paper, the print edition, but mostly they were online so that people could click on the Cape Rewind link and listen to, listen to it or read it. What drew you, Robin, to the region's history? Sometimes we can live in a place and be sort of surrounded by it, but be unaffected by it or, or not compelled. But in this particular case, you really took to it, didn't you? Yes. And I would say part of that was because of my dad, who loved everything Cape Cod. And he was especially interested in the outermost house. Um, we lived in Orleans and Brewster, and he used to go walking the dunes to try to find it. And um, I think he never did find it. And unfortunately, it, it um, blew away in the blizzard of 78. But that was sort of my introduction to wanting to know more about Cape Cod history. Now, is there a particular legend associated with the Outermost House? No. Um, the writer Henry Beston bought it um, back in the 30s or 40s and lived there and chronicled um, a year of living on the dunes. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't a legend. It was more historical fact that he lived there and wrote about it. It's an amazing region and has drawn people from so many different walks of life over the years. When I was an undergraduate uh, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I got to study the uh, life and work and paintings of Edward Hopper. And I was always so taken by Hopper's work in that area and the lighthouses that he painted. He took trips all the time, you know, up there and came back with just these amazing images. They're so stark and they're so moving. And just the quality of the light is, it's really something, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful here. But there certainly are many legends and lores that I found in my historical research. And that is sort of the genesis of my first book, Legends and Lore of Cape Cod. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how these books came about. Uh, Legends and Lore was your first, and then Cape Cod Curiosities came out in 2018, just a little bit before the pandemic. What was the genesis of these? Well, as I had said, I was approached by History Press to do the first book. And my first response was, oh, I don't know. But I, I decided to go for it, and I'm so glad that I did. And I used a lot of the blog material, but I, it was in my contract. I couldn't use, I had to have at least 30% new material. So then I spent a lot of time digging through the archives and coming up with some new stories. And then after that book was published, um, I did a series of talks and uh, lectures. And one day I thought, you know, I really have enough material for another book. And I kind of liked the idea that Legends and lore wouldn't hang out on the bookshelves by itself, mm. <laughs> so I decided to do another one. Now, were you continually finding sort of new little snippets and nuggets in these archives, and you were thinking, you know, this is just too good to pass up and, and had to go from there? Yes, yes. Well, for example, um, there was a big interest in Tony Costa, who was the murder, uh, P-Town murderer, and um, dismembered several young women in Truro. And... So for my second book, I thought, well, I have 
all the files right here. I should be using that as well. That was one particular story that I didn't blog about, but that did find it find its way into my book, my second book. Now, it's interesting because these two volumes, they are, they're kind of like compendia, aren't they? I mean, they're not sort of uh, straightforward narratives where you have one story that you're telling from beginning to end. You actually have dozens and dozens and dozens of these stories. And I was curious, what kind of system did you use to keep track of everything? You're a librarian, you know how to keep things organized. So, (laughs) you know, how did you do that? Yeah, I really did it by um, subject. So when actually, this will sound amazing, but when I, when I got the go-ahead from History Press, I sat down and wrote a li- out a list of chapter headings, and it literally took me about five minutes, you know, um, pirates, uh, sea captains, ghosts, um, yeah. UFOs, I mean, whatever the subject was. And then once I had that list, I just started putting in the different stories that went with each. And, um, but what would happen is at the paper, I did a lot of research for the editors and reporters. So often if I was researching a subject, I might find a story or a clip that, um, that was sort of in the same little packet. And um, I love to go through them. And that's how I came across some of the more unusual stories that I published. Now, when folks think Cape Cod, um, they think nor'easters. But do they commonly think pirates, sea captains, ghosts, and UFOs? Because that doesn't immediately come to mind for me. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, you know what? Those are some of my interests. I think that's why. I mean, obviously, no one thinks of Cape Cod as a UFO mecca, but um, like Roswell, New Mexico, but there have been some sightings. All it takes is one. Um, so let's let's talk about Edward Snow. Down here in Louisiana, we have a very prized category of individual, whether it's a politician or a business leader or what have you, uh, whom we call the colorful character, right? And anybody who's ever followed Southern politics knows probably a little bit about Edwin Edwards as a colorful character and, you know, Huey P. Long and the rest. But every state has their own colorful characters. And you have a whole chapter of them in Cape Cod Curiosities. I was delighted to see Edward Gorey. That was a great addition to the list. You know, there's a a local win for you guys. But boy, do you have one in Edward Snow. What a guy. Now, what is his story, and where did he come from, and how did he end up doing what he did as the flying Santa Claus? Well, he grew up um, in New England, um, and he was drawn to the sea. And in fact, after he graduated from Harvard, he um, went, he for about nine years went on different sea boats and um, voyages, and he decided to do it when he was young enough to enjoy it. And um, so he started writing about, you know, the harbors of New England and ghost stories, and um, and that's really sort of the genesis. And then he later became a columnist um, for the Patriot Ledger. And so he was not only writing, but also giving talks. He traveled all around New England and um, but he was also um, he loved to um, sail and he was very athletic. Um, he was also a photographer. He loved to photograph lighthouses. 
And that's really um, how he started. He became the Flying Santa because a friend of his was already doing this where they would, every Christmas, they would go to rural areas of New England, particularly lighthouses, and drop Christmas packages. And these packages had toys and um, sweets, but also things like packs of cigarettes and his a latest copy of his books. But um, but it's interesting because sometimes the the packages uh, went astray, and uh, there I I found one cute story on the Cape Cod Times website that um, a family a, a lighthouse keeper and his family um, were waiting for their drop at Christmas, and they couldn't find it. They found it in March. But they had a lot of fun looking for it all through those months. You know, those strong tides, I guess, can uh, you know can carry a package anywhere it, it wants to go. Now, Snow was. We'll come back to Santa in a minute. But he was. You write that he was a historian. That he was. You know, we were talking about expertise in historical research, and, and this guy is the experts expert. You write that he he was the author of something like ninety five books on re- the region's history. Yes, he was widely published, and I think he was really beloved. People took to his writing, and um, I think that, you know, he wasn't perhaps um, an academic, but that he was able to weave tales that really spoke to people. And as I said, too, he um, would travel all over New England giving talks, Um so I think that was one thing that endeared him to people, even beyond the flying Santa legend that built up around him. I was struck by your description of these of these talks because they sounded so much like, and I'm going to forget the exact phrase that you used here, but but they sounded so much like the the antiquarians of the 17th and 18th century traveling around Europe with the cabinets of curiosities, the Wunderkammern, right? I mean, it, this is basically what he had, wasn't it? It was sort of a mo- modern day Wunderkammer. Right. Well, he had, for example, he would carry with him a book that was bound in human skin. Um, he had a pair of baby booties. And um, also it said that he took some souvenirs from the Witta which had shipwrecked off of Wellfleet in 1717 and was later discovered by Barry Clifford. But supposedly in 1947, he he and another person were able to retrieve some items from that shipwreck. So that was also something that he um, showed to people when he went on his talks. You know, I have to say, when I first started reading about him, I did not expect to encounter the job description of pirate ship salvager among his many credentials. <laughs> right. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. What were the rules surrounding that? I mean, in those days, this was in the 40s or 50s, he was sort of looking at the at the wreck. I mean, could anyone just sort of, if they could get down there and get a piece, they could just have it? Or were there more sort of formal regulations surrounding this sort of thing? I don't know for sure, but I, I'm guessing there were, weren't probably many regulations regarding shipwreck salvage. Um, but it would be interesting to, to do a little more research on that. So let me ask you this. Uh, he becomes the Flying Santa, but when had he actually become a pilot? You know what? That's an interesting question because I'm not really sure in in my reading he he actually um, accompanied the former flying Santa because he was a photographer but at some point yes he must have gotten his pilot's license 
And um, he traveled with, on these um, holiday junkets, he traveled with his wife and daughter. And um, I guess it was, the daughter later described it as being scary because they would be flying so low and also um, making adjustments in order to, you know, make the drop and then also to kind of swing back around to make sure that um, the packages arrived where they were supposed to. And probably nowadays, all of those maneuvers would be illegal. <laughs> At the very, very least. Or, you know, of course, now we're in the days of sort of drone delivery, aren't we? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always charmed when I hear of good old boys in rural Arkansas shooting the drones out of the sky with a shotgun because, you know, who knows what it's bringing, right? Uh, now, I did want to ask you, Robin, because this is – the mechanism of this is kind of interesting – how, when he was delivering a package to a lighthouse, when he was dropping one off, um, how would they actually get it? Would he drop it on land and then somebody would have to sort of run out and, and go for it? Or if there was a lighthouse that was actually in the sea, would he drop it at sea? Or was there a platform he would aim for? I, I mean, how does it work? Yeah, well, I, I doubt that he would, I, I doubt they would drop it into the ocean. Um and most of the lighthouses were on land, of course, either on an island or a promontory. Um, I don't think they really had much control over where the packages went. But um, I do have a cute story. I gave a talk a few years ago, and this man said that when he was very young, he lived on Nantucket, and he remembered every year, you know, it was a big day. They'd get the kids would get dressed up, and they would all go out <laughs> cool. and wait for the flying Santa to come. And, um, but there are accounts that um, often the packages um, didn't go where they were supposed to and sometimes were discovered, you know, six months to a year later. So it was, it was kind of a, you know, <laughs> wasn't a science to it. No, of course. And I assure you that I am not here to offer any kind of uh, sort of, you know, Oh, I could have done that better. I mean, I've never conducted a Christmas bombing run, you know, on the New England coast, <laughs> right? Uh, so I have no expertise to uh, to bring to the table. I'm just so curious about it. It is such a lovely story and such generosity. Do you know, did he purchase all of these items himself? Was this sort of a just a donation on his his part to these lighthouse keepers? Yeah, well, in, in one article... Um... I read, uh, which was actually published in Harvard Magazine. Um, I guess that he and his wife um, collected items all through the year, and yeah, he spons he financed all of it. So they they often lived on kind of a shoestring budget, so they could afford it, which I think it makes him um, an even more honorable character, really. That really is something. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and you can just imagine the joy it must have brought so many families in the area just to, to hear the plane engine coming, right? You know, to just look, like you can hear it before you see it, you know, sort of thing. I mean, that's just about as 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 miraculous as you can possibly get that kind of that kind of generosity. Now, you write that he undertook this mission, if I may <laughs> phrase it in such a way, for 44 years. I mean, and he was, so he was born in the early 1900s, he died in the early 80s, and he uh, had served in World War II uh, sort of for a minute um, on, on a, 
appropriately on a bomber's crew, you know. <laughs> right. Well, he was wounded. Yeah, he was wounded and then sent back home. Right. Uh, and then it was sometime uh, around then that he began this this annual visit. I mean, 44 years. That is really something. Are there any memorials to him? Are there any sort of like observances? Is there anyone carried on the tradition of being the flying Santa after he passed? Yes, I believe there is still a flying Santa. I don't know the person's name, but I believe it's a tradition that has carried on. There's a memorial plaque on George's Island in Boston Harbor, and he was instrumental in um, saving, I believe it's Fort Wayne that was there. And um, another fort had been destroyed um, when Logan Airport was built. So he was instrumental in saving the, the surviving fort that was there. Um, and I, I'm sure that um, there are other memorials to him. That's the one I know about. Well, that is extraordinary. You know, as they say, not all heroes wear capes. And not all Santas, right, <laughs> not all Santas uh, ride sleighs, right? Oh, Benjamin, can I tell you a cute story? Please. Um, when when uh, I was sent my cover for my book, I noticed that um, on the cover of Cape Cod Curiosities, underneath um, Jeremiah's gutter and above Puckwudgie's, is a picture of the plane that Snow um, piloted. And the caption read, the historian who flew was Santa. Mm. And I thought, no, no. So I wrote back, I said, no, it's got to be the historian who flew as Santa. Right. Right. <laughs> there is a difference. So There's a major difference yes, there. Yeah. So thankfully, um, I caught that and they, they were able to to fix that copy on the cover. Yeah, it would be a little bit different of a Christmas story if, uh, you know, somebody was driving Santa himself and uh, sort of throwing right. copies of their PhD dissertation out the side. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> hopefully we can spare our children um, that, that ignominy. There are a number of wonderful stories in your book, Robin. You you really run the gamut of all different kinds of tales of uh, sort of local legends, local lore, local colorful characters. You've got wartime stories. You've got sort of uh, Victorian era stories. You've got storm stories. You have so many stories in your book. And I absolutely encourage our listeners, if they love New England history and Cape Cod history, they have to go and check it out. But the last question, of course, of course. The last question that I have for you is really kind of a uh, of a surprise question, which is, we have just finished a series on the paranormal. And we spent eight weeks traveling coast to coast, looking at all sorts of different haunted sites and abandoned mines and uh, sort of spectral hotels and all sorts of things. And I was delighted to see that you have a chapter on ghosts and the paranormal in Cape Cod. And not only do you have a chapter on ghosts and the paranormal in Cape Cod, but you have a ghost story of your very own. So as, as a Christmas gift to our listeners, would you tell us a little fireside ghost story uh, just to ring in, to ring out the old year and to ring in the new? Oh, sure. Well, when I was 10 years old, my parents moved um, 
were about to move us into an old house in East Orleans. And it was a big house with a, a breezeway and a barn attached. And my parents ultimately opened an antique shop there. Um, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, however, before we moved in, uh, my grandparents were scheduled to stay there for a week to kind of open it up. They were there one night. It was so noisy with footsteps and rustlings. And um, so when we moved in, um, there wasn't a lot of ghostly activity, but often at uh, my bedroom was on the second floor. Often at night, it felt like somebody was sitting on the edge of my bed. And there was also a lot of rapping and sounds that seemed odd. And then in the few weeks before we moved out, when I was 20, um, a series of things happened. Um, one day we were sitting in the living room and all of a sudden all the windows shut simultaneously. It was very scary. Um, and then another day I was looking out the window and we, I have two sisters and a brother, so we had a fleet of bicycles that were, you know, waiting for us. And as I watched, they all fell over at the same time. So there were lots of little poltergeist type activity. Also, one day my mother um, walked into the kitchen and the kitchen was had low ceilings. Um, and the whole place always felt a little haunted. And as she was looking out the window, she saw a face hovering there. And, and she was very frightened. And it's interesting because we lived there for 10 years and afterwards I have met people who have lived there since and they always ask about the ghost. So I don't think it was just in our imaginations. Yeah, did your mother uh, recognize this face that she saw? No, but it's interesting because at the Orleans uh, Snow Library, there are photos of our house back in like 1895. And at one time, the local undertaker lived in that house with his family. And supposedly when the, um, I think it's the Portland steamer, um, went to sea in 1898, a lot of the bodies were brought to our house and stored in the barn because there wasn't room for all of them in the funeral oh, home dear. in town. Oh, no. And supposedly there was even a blood stain, but my, my dad was a big kidder, so I don't know how much of that was his imagination. Okay, you know, now I had promised everybody that there was going to be no crime in this episode, that this was going to be our first ever crime-free episode of Crime Capsule. And I'm, a, I'm genuinely worried, Robin, that I'm going to have to take that promise back. Are you saying The Undertaker brought his work home and maybe there was some sort of nefarious goings on? Oh, no, it wasn't nefarious. I think it's just there wasn't room for all the bodies from the shipwreck because there were like 200 people who uh, drowned. Okay. okay. So the funeral home couldn't hold them all. So he, the legend was that he brought some of them and stored them in the, um, in the okay. second floor of the barn. Okay, so this was... No, it wasn't nefarious. This was above board, so to speak, I guess figuratively yes. and literally. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> Even so, to have grown up in a, in a house like that, I was struck by the, the notion that you write that you think these ghosts were, were upset at your leaving the house. How interesting. Yeah, I, yes, I think we all thought that they had kind of gotten used to us and didn't want us to leave. And the people who owned the house before us, who we knew my parents were friendly with, 
there was um, between, there was the kitchen and then there was like a little hallway and the door that went into the dining room and the door was hard to open. It had, I, I don't know whether it was a spring mechanism, but it was hard to open. But when she would read at night in the um, dining room, the door would swing open and continually swing back and forth. So that, that was considered, you know, one of the ghost um, activities before we moved in. I tell you what, for any visitors to Cape Cod, it sounds like whether they are going to be watching out for suspicious activity in their houses with doors and windows and spectral faces, or whether they are going to be looking up into the sky, hearing the sounds of engines approaching and, and Christmas presents uh, sort of raining down upon them. I have to say, it sounds like there is a lot to watch out for out on the, uh, out on the peninsula. So thank you so much for joining us. You have really brought some Christmas cheer, you and Edward Snow both, uh, to our hearts. So thank we you. really appreciate it. If folks want to find out more about your particular work, Robin, where can they go to do so? Well, they can go to Amazon. The books are on Amazon and also Arcadia Publishing. You can Google Legends and Lore of Cape Cod or Cape Cod Curiosities. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Okay. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Robin Smith-Johnson, author of Cape Cod Curiosities, Jeremiah's Gutter, The Historian Who Flew His Santa, Puckwudgies, and more, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop slash crime capsule. And one last time, don't forget to write in to crimecapsule at evergreenpodcasts.com for a chance to win a free copy of one of the books from our recent series on the paranormal. The contest closes at the end of the evening on New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve at midnight. We can't wait to hear from you. Until then, we hope you all have a safe and happy holiday season from all of us here at the show. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. 
Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. 